0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We're thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Jay Greider. Dr. Greider is the Chief Physician Executive at University of Kentucky Healthcare, UK Healthcare. He's going to talk to us about improving healthcare, about UK healthcare, about careers, and a lot more. Dr. Greider, can you take a moment to introduce yourself?
1: Certainly, Scott. Thank you for having me on today. So uh, my name is Jay Greider, and I separate those two because I run them together. It sounds like my name is Jake Ryder, but it's Jake Ryder. Uh, I am a uh, physician at the University of Kentucky, and I have been here for 20 years. Um, I, I got my medical degree from Ohio University, anesthesiologist by trade, interventional pain physician by subspecialty and began doing healthcare administration uh, oh, approximately six or seven years ago whenever I overtook some of our ambulatory uh, facilities and access work, and it's just sort of evolved into managing UK healthcare from a clinical side uh, today. So it, it's been a bit of a journey. I, I also got a PhD and an MBA along the way, so I'm probably so uh so uh, educated that I'm qualified to do absolutely nothing. I'm, I'm probably just an educated fool at this point. So,
0: it, it, but it's it's okay to be to to know and stuff <laughs> like that. Talk about Jay. Talk about the role of chief physician executive. More and more systems you have this role, as they call it, sort of different than a chief medical officer. You know, sort of the most senior physician executive. Talk about your priorities as chief physician executive.
1: So I think the way that that role is evolving is the chief medical officer was really over the medical staff and was the person that the CEO of the hospital went to to sort of corral the the non-employed medical staff and to keep the employed medical staff somewhat in line. The chief physician executive role, and sometimes it's also the chief clinical officer that you're seeing more and more of that recognizes that probably healthcare is best delivered in a dyad model with an operations person. A physician tends to have some blind spots from an administrative standpoint and an administrator tends to have major blind spots from a clinical standpoint. So if you can form a dyad, uh, where, where you're working with an operations type person, uh, a chief physician executive, i found, a lot of times is managing the finances of a medical group, uh, whereas a chief clinical officer is usually paired with the chief operating officer at a health system. In our system, that w- that's kind of the way it would work. It would be a chief clinical officer. I-, I just happen to have that chief physician executive title. All the chief medical officers in our health system report up to me. Um, so they are doing the, t- the typical chief medical officer work around quality, around Medical staff affairs uh, and those sorts of things. Whereas I'm looking at strategy, looking at hiring of the physician practice, compensation, uh, making sure we're on the front lines from a compensation standpoint, strategic objectives, making sure that we're staffing our our clinical workforce uh, with physicians and APPs in a way that that is is driving the health system towards the outcomes that it's looking for. And so. Take a moment on your career because you've you mentioned a couple
0: of degrees since, but it's not the usual path. Periodically, we get proceduralists on, anesthesiologists, often end up in leadership in systems and, and, and in different facilities. The interventional pain physician, not as often. And talk about your career path and what led you to have the interest in leadership versus so many interventional pain physicians that want to do a ton of procedures and not bother with leadership. Talk about how you evolved to to want to be involved in in this area.
1: Ooh, uh, that 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 is true. I, I joke with anybody who's interested in interventional pain. If you look at a medical school class, the people who choose anesthesiology are always a little bit of a different personality breed than the rest of the medical school class. They're always a little bit more laid back. Always a little bit more interested in in uh, in in some lifestyle things. Although they're very focused on 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 working hard usually and then you take interventional pain which is sort of a subset of the anesthesiologist and so you you almost have a group of folks that that no one understands they're usually very fiercely independent they uh they they went into anesthesia because they wanted to have some lifestyle. Then they went into interventional pain because they didn't want to be told what to do all day long by somebody running an operating room. And so you, you have this sort of self-selected group of people. So they are an interesting group of folks for sure. But the reason why I got into it was because I was an anesthesiologist. So, so I, I, I had learned the skill of, of basically knowing how to work with anybody, which and a good anesthesiologist, it's never about the personality. It's just about getting the work done, and whatever gets us to the end of the day and has the best outcome is usually the best path to take. That, coupled with with the desire to run a business like you would run it if it was your own, led me to sort of create a very successful clinic in an academic medical center that sometimes successful clinics were not well uh, – were not very plentiful. And so people said, how is it that an anesthesiologist can run – an outpatient clinic and make it that efficient and that successful and have that much patient satisfaction. And so I just kept telling them what I did and and they just kept moving me through the ranks of the system saying, you know, that kind of focus on efficiency or that kind of focus on customer service will will serve us better in in other places. And so that's sort of how my, my career got started. And and I also saw the health system make very short-sighted financial decisions with physicians saying, "If you just understood the ins and outs of how the business worked, and th- that I could tell you, I could help you," so I wanted to be able to support physicians who truly understood how to deliver maximum patient benefit in a fiscally sound model, uh, and, and have their voices heard, and uh, and and teach the health system how to recognize those individuals. So that's kind of how I I came along this career path. So
0: it's really fascinating, and, and when you talk about you know,
1: if you have 100 of these calls
0: and talk to people about, you know, how to improve the U.S. healthcare system, um, I would say 90% say something about having to move to value-based care versus fee-for-service care. And I'm curious about your perspective as a you know, is it at least one time a proceduralist? It, what's your thoughts on this? Is that the only answer to move to value-based care from fee-for-service? Is there still a place for fee-for-service? How do you sort of see that? And, how, and, and going further, how do you improve the U.S. healthcare system?
1: Well, you know, Scott, if, if I knew the answer to that, we, we probably wouldn't be talking to each other specifically at this time, or at least you'd be paying a lot more for it than you currently are, which is probably a pretty good bargain for you at this point. But uh, I believe that the biggest problem with the U.S. health system is that the patient can't determine what is high quality care and there's no way for them to know what is the best path to take. I mean, I can look on a website and I can determine pretty quickly Which of the car makers is manufacturing, at that moment, the best SUV in the midsize? And I can tell who used to have the best quality, but that slipped over the last four or five years. And right now, this brand X is the best you can't do that in healthcare. So the patient is left with the recommendation of a provider that they got to either because somebody knew them or they picked them out of a hat or they were in the network or a health system or or some other way of doing it. So it's hard to determine what is the best quality care. And I think that's the biggest problem is that we spend way too much money on healthcare that will not deliver value at the end of the day. So I'm a soccer player. And so at the age of 48, playing soccer on Christmas Eve, I had a heart attack. And in 11 minutes, I was in the door of an ER and into a cath lab. And I had a stent placed. And And I didn't take any anesthesia whenever I was getting the stent placed. And I could feel the moment they deployed the stent. And I could feel the blood flow returning to the heart. That was high value health care playing soccer two years later, I managed to do something to my hip that I then went on a journey of the last four years trying to figure out what the exact problem was and what the fix could be. Everything from a labral tear to PRP injections to physical therapy to myofascial release, you know, to hip arthroscopy, you you, you name it. And it was very difficult to determine what was going to be beneficial in, in that. So in one instance, I've had as a result of my soccer career or the lack thereof, I've had high-value health care. And, and in another instance, I've had the the journey through the wilderness that patients often take. And so the difference between those two experiences is is, is the difference in the way health care needs to be run. There needs to be a focus on high-value health care across the board rather than spending hundreds of thousands and millions and billions and trillions of dollars on health care which is provided that that doesn't hold much bene, much hope of having benefit to the provider.
0: And so, when you see this issue of you know, one of the things that's fascinating about healthcare is, and you hit it very well, is that all of us are consumers ourselves, and so, and every single person is. Not not just you who's a physician and chief physician executive, me who's, you know, in whatever I do, but we're all consumers. We all we all get a sense of what's good and what's bad, what works and what doesn't, even if we're not as educated as you are, we all have a sense of that. And how do you change that so people have a better sense and can become better at sort of understanding what's good quality and what's not? How does it how does that happen? So you have these ratings of health systems which seem closer to perhaps correct very much as best as the physician within the health system. Then you have ratings of physicians that seem completely to have no basis in reality, at least most of them unless you're dealing with very specific specialties where there are good stats taken. But how do we get to a better spot to being able to evaluate the cure we're getting?
1: Yeah, well, that's it, it, a great question. So here at UK Healthcare, we're an academic medical center, and we've entered the top twenty in Visient. We uh, we are on par to, to perhaps move up into into the top fifteen if we if our projections are correct. So we're a top fifteen performer, top twenty performer in Visient. We're a one star hospital in CMS. So these are ridiculous rankings, probably on both ends, because. I don't know that Visient rankings actually determine high quality care. I don't know that CMS rankings determine it. I know that Leapfrog doesn't recommend, doesn't, doesn't reflect an academic medical center as well as it does a community hospital. So how is a how is a how is a consumer to determine in a market? So in this market that we have here, we're at U.S. News and World Report. the top hospital in Kentucky and a busy top 20 performer. And yet we're a D in leapfrog or a C in leapfrog. Uh, and we're a one star CMS hospital. And the hospital down the street is a five star CMS hospital. Who's the best? How does anybody determine anything in all of these systems? I think the, the, the problem is that there are too many voices competing for the dollar in healthcare and you lose the focus on the outcomes. And so, rather than having hospital-centric, or doctor-centric, uh, or 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 procedure-centric, or industry-specific voices that that clamor around that, you have to figure out some sort of a system that filters out all of that noise and focuses on the outcome, and the outcome being the best outcome for the patient, and then having the treatments that that go with that. I know that sounds like it's Pollyanna and ridiculous, but I think actually the the COVID you know experience has really driven us to see that whenever you get down and you focus laser like on the outcome, which is the production of a vaccine that is going to be highly effective, and you stop all the noise that's been around it, we see falling COVID rates uh, even in 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 this week, and it's it's that combination of uh, rapid vaccine distribution and, and, and adherence to the best science, and stopping the noise that has been filtering through our, our, our country for the last, you know, ten months or so. When you really provide high quality outcomes, you start to see results. And, and I think that that's the thing: is all the competing voices from the hospital systems, which compete for the for the dollars, to the doctors who compete for the dollars. All of them have their own interest in mind. In survival, and not necessarily always the interest on best outcomes. And if you can ever eliminate all of that noise and just focus on the outcomes, I think that you will be in a situation where you, you're driving certainly better value for the patient.
0: And how hard is it to track and it, really get clarity on outcomes? I, I remember in our family, we had an experience 30 years ago. Now, not 30 years ago, it was 20 years ago, around fertility. And, and fertility was the only area in the world, not to be too much information, where there was incredible tracking of outcomes. You could truly pick labs and doctors based on how well they did. And it, and it felt very real to us. Um, and it was the only area in healthcare I've ever seen anything that was that statistically driven, that well tracked, so you really got a sense of what do outcomes look like for specific labs, specific facilities and clinics and stuff like that. But isn't that so hard to do in other areas or is that doable in other
1: areas? It is doable in other areas. it's just that you have you have people that are competing around around market forces that that don't have anything to do or that actually disincentivize the actual production of outcomes so I realize that I've spent the first fifteen minutes of our of our conversation sounding like a a a far left progressive and and when in fact I probably am a fiscal conservative of of the, of the of the most extreme uh but I believe that a fiscal conservative would demand that there be good outcomes unfortunately there 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 tends to be this focus on preserving your market share and and I think something along the lines of uh you know, regenerative medicine in my area of interventional pain is a great example of it. So, regenerative medicine has grown by leaps and bounds year over year as a cash-based practice. And what does it what does it play on? Does it play on the the outcomes that are stellar? I I don't know because I see. In an academic practice, lots of people who've gone and paid cash on the barrelhead for a procedure, and they're still seeing me, and and they they reassure me over and over again that the outcome that that they got, the boy, the doctor said that's really unusual. Normally, they get really good outcomes, but they they just didn't with with, with my procedure. So I'm now them, Yeah,
0: girl. now I'm here to see you. Exactly.
1: And so, wow. but, but you uh, have had in vitro fertilization. So, so, you know, but you knew the outcomes going in. I, I think if, if, if Dr. X said, you know what, here's my PRP outcomes and it's 17% success rate, you might think twice about that $2,000 uh, $2, cash on the barrel head to have that done. Now, if it's 78%, I'm all in. Let's 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 do that. That's worth two thousand dollars to me. So that's where the difference is, and and knowing what you're buying up front is, is pretty key. It's hard to do that in medicine, but I think we we uh, need to drive towards those sorts of uh, of, of outcomes, knowing that nothing's well, it, ever for, for sure. It's probably easier in
0: some areas than others. I mean, you know, the, the, the comment that you make about regenerative medicine, certainly the same comment that's made in, in spine surgery. That And it, and it's okay if the patient understands, look, only X percent of these are going to take and get the result we really want, as long as the patient understands it up front. Right. It, I, it, I believe that that is uh, true. It, 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 because then, then the patient makes a choice, like to make an informed decision, informed consent, yes, even though it's worth the money in the in the rehab for me to try that because it would really be a change in my life, and there's a twenty percent chance that this is not going to have the impact I want it to have. And then we'll be back doing the other things. But no, I think fascinating. Dr. Barrett, talk about just um, you know advice that you would give somebody trying to have a great career. Won't you tell a, a young doctor, young executive, young anyone? Grace on the phone with us, brilliant young person who's one of our producers. What advice do you give to a young person about having a great, fulfilling career?
1: So I think that at the heart of anything that is worthwhile in life is the relationship with other human beings. And so I believe that if you truly look for a way – and this is going to sound really corny – but if you really truly look for a way to add value in every interaction that you have with somebody, whether it's it's trying to be of service to them or find some degree of a way to add value in every interaction – then you begin to, your career makes itself. If if you, if you go into it with a desire to have a great career and to be successful and get ahead, you can do that. Uh, but at the end of it, you still feel, I think like you're, you're unfulfilled. If you go into your, uh, if you go into your career saying, how can I add value to those around me, whether you progress or not, you, you have a rich legacy of making, a vast difference in everybody that you that you've come in contact with, and I, I think that's the mindset that that uh, that that if you if you go into it with, a, I would like to add value in every instance that I have throughout the day. It's exhausting, but you uh, you you certainly I think maximize your relational value, and, and at the end of the day, I think you feel feel more successful in that. The other piece of it is is literally just. I found that showing up is is a big part of it but it's doing it's not doing 50% more than the people around you it's often just doing 5% more just doing a little something extra that most people don't do is what really stands out and it sometimes it's just the smallest amount of margin sometimes it's just writing a paper on a weekend that 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 you put out there that somebody notices and you become an expert because you put something out there and it took you, you know, a half a day to write and you put it out there on the internet and, and somebody finds that and recognizes you as an expert or, or just something along those two lines, doing those two things I think have, have really been the, the, the key uh, to, to, to me at least from a, for a career standpoint. No,
0: I think it's, it's, it's fascinating advice. It's, both a service mentality or how do you impact positively the people around you. And, and then second is you don't have to work 50% harder. If you work 50% harder, it's just a prescription for burnout, quite frankly. But a little bit smarter, a little bit harder, there's, there's, there's a great book on 1% more, a little bit more effort, a little more thought. And it's very important both in terms of how people perceive you, but also how you perceive yourself. That you're making that extra effort to be smart, to do extra things, to work a little bit harder. You went back to school at some point at night probably and, and got a second degree or a third degree on top of a fellowship and something like that. And those are all part of building the the, the fabric of a career and and, and and probably wouldn't want to do it again, at least right at this moment. We're probably quite proud that you did
1: it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, throughout the whole thing, I, I try to enjoy every minute of it. Um, I didn't enjoy mid-career too much because it was just mid-career. But but the the whole process of going to school, I I really actually kind of enjoyed every moment of it and and didn't rush any any of it. I, I had all kinds of career diversions into music and all kinds of other crazy stuff. But it, it, nobody cares about that. But I I I took my time uh, and and tried to maximize pretty much every experience along the way. So, but and, and look oh, at, look at what you've done, Scott. I mean, with 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 what you've taken, you know, Becker's to is 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 a pretty incredible thing. You know, that that, that starts from blogs and that sort of thing into into one of the leading healthcare uh, uh, you know sites in 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 the world. So that's pretty impressive. Well, we
0: we had great fun, but I was smart enough to hire a lot brighter people than myself and get out of the way. So it worked out okay, but it was um, but yeah, <laughs> we we're fortunate in. The, we were fortunate early on having, in hiring and retaining great people and ultimately sorting them out. And they really took us a lot further. Our CEOs, women, Jessica Kohler, our Chief, Molly Gamble, Ellison, you know, so they really, I mean, it really, it really is. Like I had this great content concept, they're very good on it, but Jessica was able to turn it into a real growth thing. And Molly and the editorial team were able to turn it into like, you know a much more serious every day we're covering the core of what's going on in the business of healthcare every single day and molly well, e. Ayla, laura a bunch of people get a ton of credit for what they've done as well as a whole bunch of them. i can't even start to name kate as well but jessica's leadership as ceo and my partner and prison has been magnificent but it was but it really was it was literally a lot of different pieces to it but a lot of it was just the right people and being smart enough to get out of
1: but you, but you didn't start with the idea that you'd be the leading brand of healthcare information and and, and, and guidance for physicians. You just started with the next step and you and you just took yeah, it one exactly. step at a time.
0: That's exactly right. This is exactly that right. That's exactly right. People would say, Oh my god, you're a genius at this. We were one step at a time and incremental and we there were no genius. It was it was sort of incremental and doubling down on what's working and, and continuing to double down on what's working. There's there is no genius. It's constantly doubling down on what's working, what people are responding to, and paying attention to it. Paying attention. Well, I want to write this, but nobody wants to read what I want to write. So we better be writing this where they can really, or where, where it really hits a, a a spot in the market that's useful. But no, it's a fascinating career. I mean, these these fascinating careers. I mean, it's the same thing. Like when I look at people like yourself, and I get the chance to talk to so many physician leaders and executives, and nurse leaders and nurse executives. You know, now some of the best CEOs of the country are people that were nurses by background or doctors by background. And, and to me, it's they because they've, they've been able to pivot and grow in their careers. Not that they planned to, but they, they kept on doing great jobs of what they were doing and, and looked at other just kept their eyes open, and just sort of evolved into, you know, the, the best of all careers is where they grab you versus you grabbing it, where, where it grabs you right. just became interesting to you. It's not that you set out to be chief physician executive. Quite frankly, there wasn't such a thing when you were a resident or a fellow. I, I bet, right? But but it, we evolved into the role and love it.
1: Well, and I and I bet that there was a time where you thought you were up against a failure, and it was that course correction that you thought was failure at that exact moment that actually changed everything. I bet you you can point back to one instance where you thought, I thought I had failed, and and in fact it forced me in a different direction and I would have never—I would have hit a glass ceiling and I kept going the other direction. I bet you, you can look back to some part of your career and, and identify that exact moment.
0: Yeah. I and mean, we can point to a couple of those. I mean, we, are, we decided we were going to really try and be great digitally and not try and, and, we basically decided at some point that we're ceding the territory of being the best print magazine in the business to modern healthcare, which just does a magnificent job on the print side. We do a very good job on print too. We made a decision a very long time ago. We couldn't compete with their 52 week, uh, uh, you know, 52 times a year, times of things. There were other pivots that we made that ended up being, you know, that ended up being great pivots. And there's other pivots that we made that weren't such great pivots, like all these things. But, but, but no, there were a couple of choices that we made. You know, we, we of course, thought for sure one piece of our business was going to be an important part of our business, and that ended up being a very unimportant part of our business, you know, and, and other parts that ended up being very important to you, Like the hospital well. house is everything. And we never expected that, so we didn't start there. We yeah. started in an area of surgery centers and a lot of work in the pain management and those kinds of areas that were familiar, but it ended up being hospitals, hospitals, and it ended up being the vast, vast predominant majority of the entire business. And, and really, uh, and it should have been obvious. It's obvious 20 years later, but it wasn't obvious then. But it's really been, it's been to me, it's been the the, the, the ride of a lifetime. just fantastic, the ability to just visit with yourself and others
1: every day and in the
0: middle of this ecosystem, which is just fascinating every single day.
1: <laughs> well, it's, been a, it's, it's an honor just to get to just to get to meet you and thank you for all that you've done. Uh, you know, to to put information out there in the hands of, of physicians uh, to know how to run their businesses better and uh, to to guide health systems to let each other know what's going on. It's it, it, it's just a phenomenal thing. So, well,
0: I appreciate you joining us so much. You you turned the tables on me, you got me talking, which I'm supposed to avoid, but I appreciate it, Jay, very very much. What a pleasure to visit with you, and thank you for doing this Back to your podcast today. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye.